I'm Christina Jurekides, and we're committed to making the seemingly impossible possible. We stand at the intersection of the values of humanity with the value of technology. Inspire for Impact, the podcast, is a place where we have conversations with inspirational entrepreneurs, community leaders, and representatives of organisations who are boldly creating a future by design. The good, the bad, the warts, and the inspiration. We're leading the way to be the change we want to see in the world. Conversations that bring to light the magic that is happening on a daily basis all over the globe. And welcome to another episode of Inspired for Impact. We are thrilled and excited and looking forward to this conversation with Rocky Scopoliti. So Rocky, welcome. So excited to have you with us. We've had the amazing opportunity to work together uh, on a project um, we've actually had a couple of conversations before. I really want to ask you this. A lot of people call themselves futurists, but you, Rocky, call yourself a futurologist. Can you tell me why? Why? What's the difference? Well, firstly, Christina, great to be part of your program. And thank you very much for having me on. So, look, what's the principal difference? I think there's a lot of people um, that are what I refer to as, um, as thought repeaters, right? Uh, that is that they take, um, they take information that's freely available out there and they repurpose that in a presentation manner or in a manner which helps bring that information to people's attention. Thought leaders, on the other hand, are principally based around unique research and insights. And I think that's the difference between sort of thought leadership and thought repeatership. Now, uh, now uh, this is not a right or wrong. The reality is, is we need both. Um, uh, but I think the distinguishing difference between great thought leaders is the fact that they do primary principle uh, research. And so when you look at futurists or people that classify themselves as a futurist, um, I tend to find that they, uh, they are thought repeaters uh, versus those who classify themselves as futurologists who are principally interested in the research and then the way with which they communicate the insights, be that in, you know, public speaking or books uh, or, you know, uh, through media, uh, is really talking to the areas of their primary research. And, you know, for me, I've got two. Uh, I've been, you know, researching and reporting on the fourth industrial revolution, as well as uh, youth for the last 20 years. That's been the basis, I guess, of my thought leadership. I love it. That's a perfect segue into um, words. Again, for me, are very. Uh, I relate words to you uh, very much. So, you've got two words. So let's deal with them separately because I'm sure there's almost a whole podcast in each word. Uh, youthquake. Yeah. How did so, you come across it? What's the research behind it? How do you use yeah. it? Yeah. So um, the question that I've been researching and reporting on for the last twenty years is. How do we increase our capacity to adapt to a world in accelerated change? That's been the research question. Now, before any of your guests think, my goodness, what's he been doing for the last 20 years? Hasn't he answered the question? Um, well, what's fascinating about that question is that unlike a puzzle where we know before we start that there is an answer or there's a pathway to the answer, this question here behaves more like a mystery where at best, 
you can only see to the end of the street. What's around the corner, we can't see. And so this is what's fascinating and intriguing about the question. And so where the question then comes, leads you then into is to sort of say, well, how can I best prepare for, I, for what I can't see, but what is around the corner? And really to address that question, there's two areas that, uh, that I've um, been a very strong advocate around. And the first is around demographic change, specifically looking at youth. Uh, and so I've been, again, researching and reporting on the millennial demographic and more recently on the Gen Z demographic uh, throughout that time. So I've watched them grow up digitally. And, uh, and, and so in 2017, I can remember so clearly, Christine, I was driving home in the car and uh, the Oxford Dictionary had just announced that Youthquake uh, had become the 2017 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year. And I just had to pull over. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I was just so excited because I thought, yes, this is such a symbolic way of acknowledging and recognising the incredible influence that this demographic is going to have on the world, if not already. Now, what's fascinating about that is that the word youthquake was in fact not termed in 2017. It was first termed, in fact, in the mid 60s by the editor in chief of Vogue magazine. Um, and that was to explain the significant cultural, social, political, technological shift that was occurring in the mid 60s as a result of who are now the baby boomers. Uh, and we, we, you know, we're, we're all familiar with uh, what happened, but the significance of that, that change, we saw the significant rise of new opportunities. We saw the rise of, you know, the consumer markets. We saw the rise of, of credit. We saw the rise of white goods, home ownership, motor, motor vehicles. All of these things occurred on the back of that youthquake in the 60s. Now, the point that uh, I, I bring people to is Youthquake in 2017 by the millennial demographic is not something new. We have seen this before. And so it's so important to be thinking about, well, what are the new industries? What are the new opportunities that are going to come off the back of this Youthquake as it did back in the 60s? Um, now, here's the other really, really fascinating part about that, uh, about that word. Um, um, when you think about millennials, who are their parents? They're the baby boomers of the, of the, uh, the mid-60s. And, and who is the most influential people in your lives? It's your parents. So this is, this is not by accident. Um, it is, um, it is, you know, uh, it, it is completely about another demographic who has grown up with a set of beliefs influenced by their parents, who were the first youth Quakers, uh, that are now making a significant impact on the world, socially, culturally, technologically, economically, scientifically, whichever way you want to think about it, they've got a completely different set of values. Uh, to generations before them, and they will transform the world. And so that's really the story around uh, around Youthquake. 
I love that. And it's it's like every generation is meant to push the generation before it because that's how we we keep going um, forward with new limits. I know that, you know, my parents push their parents. I know that we pushed our parents. I know that my kids certainly push us. Um, so it, it's that constant pushing out of, of the barriers that those constraints. And I love the fact that the word youthquake has been around um, that long because I, I did a talk last night on the metaverse and I actually said, you know, the, the term is first realised in the 1990s. It's not something that's happening right now anyway. So it's interesting how that terminology um, comes around and, and then builds in its momentum. And I can just imagine your excitement because with that Italian heritage, I'm sure you get very excited about a lot of things because with my Greek heritage, I do as well. Um, <laughs> let's talk about juvenescence because I, I think that's an amazing term and it's something that sticks within people's minds as well um tell me about the beginnings of the term juvenescence yeah uh, and then how you use it in your work yeah so juvenescence is a beautiful 19th century uh latin word defined as the constant state of youthfulness now uh so it, the, this word took me months to find and i specifically went out with the intention of finding an alternative word to describe uh, success in, uh, in terms of technological you know, advancement. Because what I learned in my research was that the, the word transformation has become associated to these massive once-off events uh, that sound a little like this. Uh, you know, at a AGM or, you know, in a public statement or, or, or what have you, you'll have a company and its board or, or, or management team announcing, you know, a squillion dollar, you know, transformation and, and that this transformation is going to require squillions of dollars to be reinvested back into the company. And, you know, we're going to title this Strategy 2025. And so there's this sort of expectation and this belief that in 2025, they're going to unveil this shiny new company that's going to live in prosperity, uh, in perpetuity. That's the way these things have sold. But the reality is, is that three and four uh, transformations fail to meet their objectives. And this was data that I looked at across 91 countries, uh, 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 across 26,000 publicly listed organizations. And so, uh, and so what I thought was that there's nothing wrong with the word transformation as it is uh, properly defined. The problem is that it's become associated uh, to these once-off events. And so I specifically searched for an alternative word that could help us explain the way we've got to think about success and survival in the future. And the, and the, and the underpinning theory here is that the competitive advantage in the fourth industrial revolution this coming decade is not based on your size, scale or reputation. It's principally based on your capacity to adapt to a world in accelerated change and be able to react and respond to that. So uh, that's when I discovered juvenescence. Um, and so when you think about that word, there are many applications uh, for it. And I often 
encourage people to embrace it as a leadership principle or as a professional principle or an organizational strategy. But the theory here, just like Youthquake, is, is not new to us, right? Uh, this is Darwinian's theory of survival. Um, and that is that, you know, those who adapt survive, simple as that. Uh, and so, so I use juvenescence to encourage leaders to embrace change, embrace uncertainty, not resist it, uh, because a lot of these forces, like the fourth industrial revolution, like demographic change, emerging technologies, they're outside of your control. Uh, it's how you prepare yourself for uh, existing and leading in a world that is increasingly becoming a mystery, not a puzzle. Uh, and, uh, and so that seems to resonate really, really well with people. Um, and so then we get back into, well, then how do you become, you know, more juvenescent as a leader? Well, they're things that you can control, right? Because uh, the only certain certainty in an uncertain future uh, is your behaviour. <laughs> and, and so it really begins with you as a leader and then how you apply that in terms of your organisation, the culture that you foster within the organisation um, and, you know, the courage to test and learn, the courage to fail and embrace that as, uh, you know, as a insight in terms of where you shouldn't, you know, go again. Uh, you know, I think Elon Musk's SpaceX is always, I think, very, very inspiring for me where, you know, he talks about the fact that when they began SpaceX, uh, they began that organisation uh, knowing that they uh, could could fail five rockets <laughs> before they got got to where they were, and I think that's really uh, you know that's really important because that I think is what the decade ahead is uh, is about. And so I'm always curious about you know the question of how do leaders and organisations get their juvenescence on right? I love that, and and you know, Musk actually puts his money where his mouth is and he went, you know, five failures and so many people go, oh yeah, it's okay to fail. And the consequences of failure are not, it's okay. We've got another rocket happening. Uh, but I love also what you said, the difference, because humans have always had to adapt. You yeah. know, we've always had to, always had to change and we always have changed. Otherwise we'd still be being chased by dinosaurs and, and living in caves, so to speak. Uh, but it's that exponential effect now and that it's happening at a faster rate which means that we need to increase our capacity for that adaptability uh let's stick with the words because now i want to go to um your book that's just been released australia 2030 where the bloody hell are we such a good pun on <laughs> on the uh tourism almost catastrophe not sure whether that was an accepted um tourist campaign or not um for those of you that haven't heard it Google how the bloody hell are you and then uh, and see what comes up but love the title of the book let's talk about the contents um, of the book and how the book came about as well yeah so 2020 we might all uh, recall at the end of that year uh, we finished the decade uh, in uh, in what was probably Australia's most turbulent decade economically technologically uh, politically uh, and and socially, 
were, we were, you know, we had more changes of government uh, than any other country on the on on the earth. Uh, you know, trust had eroded in our, you know, government and our uh, institutions uh, to its lowest level ever since Edelman have been, you know, producing the uh, the trust barometer. And so I thought, so when I, when the, the original idea was, you know what, I'm going to write uh, a book uh, to give people confidence about our future. That's, uh, that's, that was you know the the intention, and uh, and to that end, I invited um, approximately seven hundred Australian professionals, um, one hundred and eighty of which were CEOs, boards, um, and um, uh, and chair people, to participate in a study which looked at you know the question of how do we feel about the decade ahead, and so off with gusto I went. Uh, and uh, amazed about what was coming back. But then I, I stopped and thought, you can't explain your attitudes towards the decade ahead unless you can actually explain why you believe or where your beliefs have evolved to. And I thought, oh, goodness, I'm going to have to go back and have a look at the last decade um, uh, to understand why it is we, we, you know, we think this way. And so, you know, it was, you know, reflecting back on the decade ahead and um, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, now I understand why trust is where, where it is, why we are looking to technology, for example, to put our trust in this coming decade versus institutions in the past. And so, um, and so I think it's important to understand that, uh, you know, we've got to understand where we've come from. Uh, before we can understand where we're going to in terms of our in terms of our attitudes, and so it was a wonderful sort of point in time because um, uh, back at the end of 2020, you might recall that we were just you know going through the worst bushfires uh, you know we and po possibly the world has ever seen. Uh, it was a point in time where. Um, we were also in the um, very early stages of watching COVID unfold in the Northern Hemisphere. And so in December um, of 2020, I realized that, um, that we were, that this new pandemic was unfolding around us. And so when I launched the study, um, it was launched in January, um, and went all the way through to April, which enabled me to then contrast the pre-COVID and the post-COVID attitudes towards the way that we think about the future. And so timing is everything they say in research, and I just happened to, to pick it right. Um, and uh, and so, so here's the thing. I think despite, uh, so I, I would say some of the key insights of these, despite all of the uncertainty that, um, that exists in the world, Australian leaders and professionals are very optimistic about the decade ahead. Uh, they are very, very optimistic about the role of technological and scientific contributions and advancements uh, that we can make this year. 
They are, however, quite concerned that we are not investing adequately in those areas and we are not investing adequately, adequately in the skills that we need uh, for, those, uh, for those advancements. Now, that, that's probably not coming as anything of any surprise to us because, you know, there are skill shortages. We've got a whole range of indicators that are, that are telling us this. And so I think addressing uh, these, you know, the, the, the way we reskill has to be our number one priority. The second thing that was really quite fascinating was okay, I did sorry, ask- just before you go into the second thing, so please hold that thought because we'll come yeah. back to it. But this has been something we've been discussing forever. This is pre-COVID, reskilling, yep. skilling up properly, correct education. You know, I, I can't tell you how many conversations, panels, um, events I've been involved with, as I'm sure you have been as well with your with your university um, uh, integrations. When are we actually going to do something? Because everybody talks about doing something about the upskilling. And can I just be really clear? This is not just a pandemic issue. This has not yep. just happened in the last two years. What do we need to actually give us that kick up the butt that we need to move education, um, to move skilling, to really say, hey, it's not just a terminology, lifelong learning. Uh, what do we need to do? Yeah, uh, look, great question. And thank you for pausing me to, to address that. So I think what uh, I think what has happened is that um, I think the private sector probably looked at the um, public sector in both the form of government and our education institutions uh, to really address that. Um, but I think what, what's happened now, Christina, is that we've now the private sector now has realised that's not going to happen. <laughs> They're entrenched in a education system and model um, that is, you know, wedded to the education systems of the past that are inadequate uh, for a whole variety of reasons to supply the skill sets uh, that we need to the new and emerging industries in the right supply. And COVID was, was, was really what brought that to a head. Uh, so I think the answer to your question is, I think what we're seeing is the private sector is now taking that on. Uh, and the private sector is now sort of saying, well, I'm going to take full responsibility for reskilling my workforces. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we're now seeing, uh, I think, that occur on, on a much larger scale. Now, uh, even, even that approach has had its limitations uh, because the systems and structure of learning uh, hadn't really adapted. And so this is where I think some of the work that UTS, to whom I'm associated with, uh, has done some really remarkable thinking. So they've, they've developed a, an AI-based platform called FutureTrack. Now, FutureTrack allows uh, an organisation to predict its demand across a whole variety of different um, skill types that it requires in which time periods, and then to map that uh, back to an audited skill sets across its workforces. So we can, if it knows that, you know, at the end of this year, it needs, you know, 20 data scientists, 
the system allows you to, to identify which people in the organization today have, uh, you know, uh, the capacity to reach 70% or 60%, whatever you want to set, proficiency by December this year in data science. Uh, and then what it does is then map a pathway that's tailored to that individual to get them there. Uh, the second part uh, of the platform, which I think is really important, is what they refer to as adaptive capacity. Now, adaptive capacity, you know, in short, is your will. So just because you've got the technical capacity to be a data scientist by the end of this year, doesn't necessarily mean you want to be. And, and there could be a whole variety of different reasons. So the platform is able to incorporate both those dimensions. So what does this all mean? If you look at, if you look at the way education uh, and the model of education in the past, it's about sheep dipping everyone, right? This means everyone has to learn maths again. <laughs> and, uh, but this, this, this platform allows you to understand proficiency um, and it allows you to stock take skill sets so that you're not having to sheep dip. So from a productivity and efficiency perspective, the platform allows you to deliver the skill sets that re you require off the baseline that your workforces that you've got today uh, in the most highly efficient and productive manner. And so I think that's the, to me, you know, that's what's critical in the private sector is how do we take our workforces and reskill them in the most highly efficient, productive way while these workforces are still doing their day jobs. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the difference now, Christina. And I think that's great. Also, the fact that people aren't just looking externally for the skills, that they're looking internally, because often that's what creates a lot of angst um, within an organisation when there is no opportunity to reskill, relearn, advance yourself within the organisation that you may not mind working in. The other thing I'm just going to throw out there, and then we'll go to your point too, if you can remember what it was, um, but the other thing is that, that I have an absolute belief that as long as education is tied to a three-year termed government, we are not going to get the changes that we really need. So it really needs to come out of government control. I don't know if that's private sector. I don't know what that looks like. The funding still needs to be there, but it needs to be away from the political gains uh, that people make. So I'll just finish that little rant and go, what was point two? So point two is about demographic change. Um, and, uh, and, and now what I mean by that is uh, I explored how Australian professionals leaders felt about a world that's going to be uh, led by millennials, those that are broadly aged 21 to sort of, you know, early, early 40s. How do they feel about that? Uh, and overwhelmingly so, uh, they felt great about that. And what was really fascinating was these are the Gen Xs and the baby boomers as well. Uh, and so this is about the Australian professionals and leaders feel really good and feel optimistic about the leadership that this new demographic will unfold, you know, as they permeate all aspects of society, whether that's politically, whether that's socially, economically, technologically. And so that gives us great cause for optimism. 
I think when we when we look at youth uh, and we think of them from a leadership perspective, their proportionate representation across all facets of society is only going to increase. Uh, and now you've got the next generation of youth coming through the Gen Zs. And so it's wonderful, I think, to see that level of optimism uh, in terms of, uh, of, of, of what you know, demographic change we're about to undergo here. Now that's one end of bookend of the demographic picture. Uh, at the opposite end of that, this decade, the age, uh, the aging population of Australia, this coming decade, is going to hit us like never before. And the principal reason behind that is that um, that where we are experiencing now the retirement of the baby boomer generation, and so uh, the OECD run a um, a set of measures. Uh, across countries around the world, which look at, it's called the age, uh, uh, the, the age youth uh, ratio. So the proportion of working age people aged between 25 and 64 uh, relative to those 65 plus. Uh, now, when I looked at the data here, Australia, like the United States, like Europe, like Japan, uh, is in the lowest category. We have one of the lowest proportions of working age people relative to our ageing uh, population. And the trajectory by the OECD out to 2030 and beyond sees that curve uh, decline even further. Now, the, 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 so let me now bring in a couple of points. Australia already has had in the last decade a significant productivity issue. We all know that. Uh, and so the point here is that we can't just look to labour, which is going to be even in greater scarcity this coming decade for that reason, to be the answer. We have to look for answers to our productivity technologically, scientifically. We have to look at other things that are going to help us with that. Now, the, the other reason why that's important specifically for governments is that the funding that's going to be required in 2028 and 2029 to support our aging uh, or aged population is going to be greater than the funding required for the NDIS, for Medicare, for all of our social systems in that same year. And so, uh, so this is a, this is a, this is a national problem. This is a, a national issue uh, because the you know the this will hit the government in terms of um, its uh, its tax revenue. And so again, there are incentives there for you know the private sector, the public sector, all of us to look for alternative ways to address our increasing decline of proportionate people. Uh, in the workforce to support our aging population profile. And Asia's the, the complete opposite, right? There, because you've got young populations in, uh, you know, in Jakarta, one in two people is less than 30 years of age, or sorry, in Indonesia, um, one in two people are less than 30 years of age. Uh, they don't have those similar issues. And so labor, labor will, will, will continue to remain uh, an advantage in those countries that have a demographic profile 
you know, um, that is disproportionately skewed around youth. And there's, you know, they are throughout all of Asia, as well as in, um, in, in Africa and also in South America. It's fascinating. Um, and there's so much more to talk about. I'm going to invite you back because I'd love to hear more about your research and, uh, and discuss more around your discovery of words as well. So next time we're actually going to start off with, I'm really curious to know how you went searching for the word juvenescent. So that's going to be our first question. I'll just put you on notice. Uh, <laughs> let me get you back in. Uh, but yeah, fascinating all the research um, and where it's going to lead. Uh, and also knowing that things change so quickly and when when is research valid and then when do we have to move on to the next piece of research, which it sounds like you're always doing anyway. Rocky, it's been absolutely amazing speaking with you uh, and uh, inviting you back um, in the not too distant future to continue the conversation. Uh, but thank you for sharing all that with us. Youthquake, Juvenescence, um, let me ask you, well, let me ask you for one parting word to our listeners, or oh, not one parting word, one parting suggestion or phrase or something for our listeners. Stay curious. Stay curious. That's two words, but curiosity, right? I think that's the, that, that, that is such an empowering word because it keeps us, it keeps us focused on searching for new things, right? Love it. Rocky, thank you so much. Pleasure. Um, over to you. our next conversation. Thank you, Christina. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends, colleagues, family, and uh, we will put the links to Rocky's books uh, in, in the notes below. As you walk through your day, remember to love unconditionally.